There's a story that before World War I swallowed Europe, Houdini got a chance to tour Russia. While there, he was invited by Tsar Nicholas II and the Empress Alexandra to perform in front of the royal family while they were staying in Moscow. It was well known that the Russian royals had a special interest in magic, conjurers, and spiritual gurus. Houdini's performances around Europe had clearly piqued their interest. So, the master magician was given a special invitation to perform for the Romanovs and their guests within the walls of the Kremlin. We're told that even Rasputin himself joined the royals to carefully observe the world-famous Houdini. The performance for the Romanovs began with Houdini performing a number of his trademark illusions and escapes. But for his finale, Houdini passed out small slips of paper to everyone in attendance. On the slips, each audience member was to write down some miracle that they wished for him to perform. All they needed to do was think of some incredible occurrence, and Houdini would make it happen, right there, on the spot. All the guests wrote down a suggestion, and the slips were collected. Houdini then selected a slip at random and read it aloud. The request on the slip was for the magician to make the bells of the Kremlin ring without leaving the room, and of course, by only using his magical ability. This task would be especially miraculous because the bells of the Kremlin had not been rung for over a century. The ropes that had been used to ring the bells had long since been removed. If Houdini was truly a worker of magic, then all he needed to do was bring the sounds of the Kremlin bells back to Moscow. We're told that Houdini thought on this for a moment. Then he moved to one end of the room and made a grand gesture with his hands. And then they heard the sound. Quietly at first, and then steadily building to a full chorus. The bells were ringing. The Romanovs were delighted, and Rasputin, we're told, quietly stewed in the corner, annoyed to be upstaged by this American. How did he do it? Well, if we believe our source, Houdini eventually revealed the secret of this little feat. You see, Houdini had planted the slip that said, Ring the bells of the Kremlin. No one in the room had actually written down that suggestion. He then used a simple sleight of hand to produce the desired slip of paper when the time was right. Across the courtyard from where Houdini was performing was Bess Houdini, the magician's wife, watching the performance carefully through the window. When Houdini gave the signal, Bess leaned out an open window and aimed an air rifle at the bells. She then opened fire, and soon the bells of the Kremlin were ringing through the Moscow night. The story I just told you has become one of the most beloved bits of Houdini lore. This is Houdini in full Forrest Gump mode, after all. He's crossing paths with the notables of his era. He's even outshining the equally mythical Rasputin, in his own house, no less. 
This story was a particular favorite of the great American writer and director Orson Welles. If you're not familiar, Orson Welles is perhaps best known as the auteur behind the film Citizen Kane, which is still ranked by the AFI as the greatest American film ever made. Welles was also one of the key figures behind the infamous War of the Worlds radio broadcast in 1938. That was the adaptation of the beloved H.G. Wells novel presented as a series of radio news broadcasts. Legend has it that the radio play was so convincing that it caused a real panic among listeners who thought that the Martian invasion being described was actually happening. Now, since then, many historical sleuths have thrown some cold water on the idea that there was a mass panic caused by the radio play. The War of the Worlds panic may, in fact, be a historical myth. Still, when it comes to Orson Welles, he's a character who had a somewhat creative relationship with the truth. War of the Worlds used the authoritative style of the radio broadcast to make the alien invasion fantasy more compelling. Welles was someone who never let the truth get in the way of a good story. He once said, quote, I discovered at the age of six that everything in this world was phony, warped with mirrors. Since that time, I've always wanted to be a magician. End quote. In fact, Wells even claimed that he was tutored in the arts of magic by none other than Harry Houdini. In 1955, Wells created a series of television shorts for the BBC in the UK called Orson Welles' Sketchbook. In a series of six 15-minute episodes, Wells tells stories from his life directly into the camera and muses on a number of topics. <laughs> I would say that Orson Welles' Sketchbook is a relic from another time, but it actually kind of has the vibe of a YouTube video. A creator shot shoulders up, addressing the audience directly, spouting off about whatever's on his mind. Felt familiar. Anyway, in the fourth episode of this series, Wells claims that when he was a child, his father arranged for him to be tutored in magic by Harry Houdini himself. It's in this wistful, nostalgic context that Wells then relates his favorite Houdini story the time Houdini rang the bells of the Kremlin. This was an act that Wells called, quote, a particularly ingenious miracle. He then goes on to remember sitting backstage at the New York Hippodrome with Houdini, studying his every move and absorbing tidbits of wisdom from the great magician. Wells would remember that Houdini would tell him sternly, quote, you must practice a trick Orson a thousand times before you perform it, end quote. However, Wells would also remember that as he was absorbing that lesson, one of Houdini's confederates, an inventor who created stage illusions, came into the dressing room with a new magical lantern. Houdini apparently took one look at it and said, Wonderful, I will put it in the show this evening. According to Wells, this do-as-I-say-but-not-as-I-do attitude was, quote, the start of a great disillusionment, end quote. Ah, 
The start of a great disillusionment indeed, Orson. Orson Welles' stories about Houdini are delightful. But almost nothing that Orson Welles said about the magician on the sketchbook program can be verified. It's possible that Wells met Houdini when he was a child, but most Houdini biographers are skeptical that Orson Welles ever sat in Houdini's dressing room and literally studied at his knee. More significantly, it seems like Orson Welles may have invented the story of Houdini ringing the bells of the Kremlin out of whole cloth. Wells is the earliest known source for this story, And there are a million things about this story that make it impossible. First, it is true that Houdini toured Russia in 1903, but there's no evidence that he performed for Nicholas and Alexandra. Houdini biographer Joe Posnansky has pointed out that Tsar Nicholas II, like many previous Russian rulers, was a noted anti-Semite. This makes it quite unlikely that he would have had a Jewish performer put on a private show for his family. Now, we do know that on the 1903 tour, Houdini performed for the Grand Duke Sergei Alexandrovich and the Grand Duchess in Moscow. The Grand Duke was Nicholas's nephew, so either he didn't know that Houdini was Jewish or the Grand Duke simply was not bothered by the fact But aside from this performance for the Grand Duke, there is no other evidence that Houdini performed for any other royals while in Russia. But on top of that, there are other details of the Orson Welles story that don't add up. First, even if Houdini had performed for Nicholas and Alexandra, Rasputin would not have been there. Rasputin wouldn't come into the Romanov court until 1905, two years after Houdini's tour of Russia. Finally, the geography of this story doesn't really work with the layout of the Kremlin. The Ivan the Great Bell Tower, which is located within the Kremlin complex, could have presumably housed the bells allegedly shot by Bess Houdini, but it's completely unclear where this performance would have had to have taken place so that Bess could have both watched for her signal and then got a good shot at the bells. Also, Bess getting access to an abandoned room in the Kremlin while toting a firearm, I don't know, kind of strains credulity. All this leads up to the most probable conclusion, and that is that Orson Welles made the whole thing up. Or he put his own romantic spin on a rumor that he had heard years before. Either way, the bells of the Kremlin story seems to be a total fiction. I can't help but wonder what Houdini would have thought about Orson Welles' little bit of storytelling. You see, I feel like he would have been of two minds. On the one hand, Houdini loved a bit of romantic exaggeration. He would happily spin yarns about his exploits, and on many occasions he leaned into the more marvelous rumors about his abilities. However, Houdini drew a line when it came to manipulation. At a certain point, he believed deception could be wrong, dangerous, and deeply immoral. 
In fact, what would prove to be the last phase of Houdini's career would be characterized by a crusade against charlatans. But Houdini's personal quest to discredit the frauds associated with the spiritualist movement made him a number of enemies. Is it possible that Houdini's personal code around which deceptions were benign and which were malicious eventually sent him on a path that led to his untimely death? Let's see if we can put it all together today on Our Fake History. Episode number 170, Who Knows Houdini, Part 3. Hello and welcome to Our Fake History. My name is Sebastian Major and this is the podcast where we explore historical myths and try to determine what's fact, what's fiction, and what is such a good story that it simply must be told. Before we get going this week, I just want to remind everyone that an ad-free version of this podcast is available through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash ourfakehistory and start supporting at $5 or more every month. And you can get access to an ad-free feed and access to all the other wonderful extras I currently have on offer. This includes my most recent extra episode, giving my critique of the Graham Hancock Netflix thing called Ancient Apocalypse. If that sounds like something you're interested in, then please go check it out. This week, we are wrapping up our trilogy of episodes on America's most iconic magician and escape artist, Harry Houdini. If you've not already put it together, this is part three in a three-part series on Houdini. So if you've not heard the first two parts, then please go back and give those a listen now. In part one, we looked at Houdini's early life as a Jewish immigrant in America. We saw how Houdini himself would eventually obscure his origins and would later claim that Appleton, Wisconsin had been his birthplace, when actually It was Budapest, Hungary. We then traced his early career and explored the questionable tale of how he met and married his wife, Bess. In part two, we looked at Houdini's meteoric rise to fame in the year 1899. Along the way, we picked apart one of Houdini's best media manipulations, the war in the California papers with one Professor Benzon. We then explored Houdini's choice to head to Europe just as his fame was cresting in America. Specifically, we looked at the story that Houdini got his first gig in London after escaping a pair of handcuffs at Scotland Yard. Then I spent some time unpacking the theory that Harry Houdini may have been a secret agent, potentially working for both the American Secret Service and the British by way of Scotland Yard. I discovered that while it may have been a possibility, the evidence suggesting that Houdini spied is incredibly thin. But 
Who knows? Today, I am going to be doing my utmost to bring this series to a close. Now, wrapping this series in three parts has meant that I've had to make some tough choices about what to cover. So if I don't discuss your favorite bit of Houdini lore, then please forgive me. There's only so much I can get into here. If you want to go deeper, then please let me recommend two biographies that have been incredible sources for this series. First is Kenneth Silverman's Houdini. That's Houdini with three exclamation marks. And second is Joe Posnanski's The Life and Afterlife of Harry Houdini. If you need more Houdini in your life, those books are excellent places to start. You can also go to OurFakeHistory.com and click on the page for this episode and see all of the sources that I used to make this series. Okay, we've got lots to cover, so let's not waste any more time. Let's pick up with Houdini when he returned to America in 1905 and tried to take his career and reputation to the next level. Let's dive in. We have now entered the phase of Houdini's life and career that we might call the imperial period. This is a phrase that I've used before on the podcast that I've actually borrowed from the pop chart analyst Chris Melanthi, host of the podcast Hit Parade. He uses that term to describe an era in an artist's career where they simultaneously hit a creative, commercial, and critical peak. This is the era when they are truly unstoppable and their greatness can't really be denied. For Houdini, the imperial period arguably lasted from 1904 to 1913. And some might even argue that it continued all the way to his death in 1926. Now, obviously, this is a huge swath of time, and I'm not going to be able to go through it all with a fine-tooth comb. But what I do want to do is point out a number of the essential moments that enshrined Houdini as the world's premier magician and escape artist. And, of course, I want to bust some persistent myths along the way. So that means I'm going to be picking up the pace of our narrative a little bit here. Hopefully, you'll indulge me. Between the years 1900 and 1904, Houdini and his wife, Bess, performed almost exclusively in Europe. Now, that's not to say that they never returned to America in those years. They would vacation and visit family, but they would not perform in the United States again until 1905. Essentially, Houdini had become a more expensive act to book as his profile grew in Europe. At first, American promoters were slow to accept Houdini's new rates— But in 1905, Keith's vaudeville circuit finally determined that Houdini was worth the money. And so 
he was back in the United States doing a tour of American theaters by the fall of 1905. Now, obviously, Houdini had been away from America for quite some time. He had done his utmost to keep his name in the press by sending articles, often articles he wrote himself, back to American papers so that they could report on his exploits overseas. This had helped. But if Houdini was going to remain one of America's foremost performers, he needed to reintroduce himself to the country he considered home. He did this with some truly novel illusions. The next five years of his career, Houdini pushed himself to create an act that was more dangerous and more headline-grabbing than ever. It was in this period that Houdini developed many of the escapes that would become his most memorable. And almost all of them had to do with water. This began with what have been called the manacled bridge jumps. These were escapes done in public to drum up publicity for his stage show. Houdini would go to notable bridges and other jumping off spots around America. There, he would be handcuffed or otherwise bound. Then he would jump into the water and make his escape as he sank underneath the waves. Between 1906 and 1908, he would jump from the Belle Isle Bridge in Detroit, the Waylock Bridge in Rochester, New York, the Harvard Bridge in Boston, and Young Piers in Atlantic City, just to name a few. In one particularly well-remembered stunt, he jumped manacled into the Mississippi River from the top of a riverboat in New Orleans. The local paper would report that a crowd of 10,000 curious onlookers came to see that one. The sheer numbers reported there are a testament to just how quickly Houdini was able to reaffirm himself as one of America's top performers. In this era, he could draw crowds of thousands. But the bridge jump escapes also provide the setting of another big Houdini myth. This is the infamous trapped under the ice story. The story gets told a number of different ways, but here's the most often related version. In 1906, when Houdini jumped from the Belle Isle Bridge in Detroit, He chose to do it in a particularly dramatic way. We're told that the Detroit River had been completely frozen over the day of the jump. So a hole was cut in the ice specifically so Houdini could jump through. The sub-zero temperatures obviously adding to the danger associated with this daring escape. We're told that Houdini plunged through the hole in the ice But once underwater, he completely lost track of where the opening had been. Everywhere he looked, he just saw an impenetrable layer of ice. Time ticked by, and the onlookers grew uneasy. Had Houdini died under the ice? He had nearly run out of air when, through some great providence, he found an air pocket between the surface of the ice and the water. Floating up to the pocket, he managed to reach his lips into that small space, and there he caught his breath. He then reoriented himself, located the lost hole in the ice, and emerged. Of course, 
In all of this, Houdini had still managed to escape from his handcuffs. It's a great tale. And this story has been catnip for those who have dramatized the life of Harry Houdini. One of the most famous dramatizations of Houdini's life has to be the 1953 film starring Tony Curtis. That movie was hugely popular and did much to shape the myth of Houdini into the later 20th century. In fact, many of the myths that people believe about Harry Houdini today come from the 1953 Tony Curtis film. In that movie, the trapped under the ice sequence was one of the more memorable moments. But there's good reason to believe that this never happened. Now, the source for this story was Houdini himself. He would tell versions of this story to a number of magazines over the course of his life, However, he was extremely inconsistent when it came to the time, place, and circumstances of the alleged near-death experience. Research done by the Houdini expert John Cox has shown that the earliest version of this story was told by Houdini to the Washington Post in 1912. In that telling, he claimed that he was trapped under the ice on Christmas Day in Detroit, However, a few years later in 1919, in an article written for the magazine Hearst's called Risking My Life for a Living, Houdini claimed that the episode Under the Ice had actually occurred in Pittsburgh. Houdini would also claim that the escape he was attempting wasn't a manacled jump, but in fact a more elaborate escape where he was handcuffed, locked in a trunk, and then pushed into the water. Now, to be clear, Houdini did perform that type of escape. It was called the overboard box escape. However, we know that he wouldn't attempt one of those escapes until 1912. Eventually, the story was picked up by Houdini's first biographer, Harold Kellogg. Kellogg reported the story as a fact, and despite Houdini's own tweaks, he decided to set it once again in Detroit. The truth seems to be that the entire tale was an exaggeration. Houdini did jump into the Detroit River in 1906, but the newspaper reports do not mention the river being iced over. The Detroit News from November 27, 1906, reported that Houdini jumped into the Detroit River manacled with two sets of handcuffs. The article goes on to describe Houdini staying near the surface of the water and coming up for air once before freeing himself. The biggest calamity faced by Houdini, according to the article, was, quote, a handicap of a cramp that paralyzed his left hand when he struck the icy water, end quote. The article then concludes that Houdini made it to a lifeboat, quote, safe but half frozen, end quote. No other contemporary accounts of Houdini's manacle jumps say anything about him being caught under a sheet of ice. The best research seems to suggest that this is yet another myth of Houdini's creation. 
But perhaps this myth has been so tenacious because it fits so well with the way that Houdini's act evolved after his return to America. The threat of drowning became an essential part of his stagecraft. This was central to the development of one of his best-loved and most copied stage illusions, the milk can escape. For this illusion, Houdini designed a special piece of stage equipment that looked like a commercial milk can. That is one of the large cylindrical canisters that were used to transport big quantities of milk in those times. Houdini's milk can was large enough that he could fit inside it curled up in the fetal position. The act would begin with the can being brought out on stage and then being filled in front of the audience with water, milk, or sometimes beer from a local brewery. At this point in his career, Houdini became a bit of a master at creating clever business tie-ins for his escapes. Houdini would then crawl into the can, displacing the water as he got in. Then he would challenge the audience to hold their breath along with him. Now, Houdini had been training himself to hold his breath for extended periods of time, and he got quite good at it. He would get into the can, the lid would be placed over his head, and he would stay submerged for well over a minute long after most of the audience had given up holding their breath. Then he would emerge smiling, ready to do the real escape. He would then crouch back down into the can, and the water or beer or milk would be topped up over top of him. The lid would then be clamped on with six padlocks. Then Houdini's little curtained area, known as the ghost house, would be brought in to obscure the secret of the escape. Two minutes would tick by, sometimes three. Enough time for everyone in the audience to realize they could no longer hold their breath. And then the curtain dropped to reveal Houdini, free from the can, with all six padlocks still in place. The milk can was a huge hit. Now, Houdini himself would later admit that the milk can prop was a fairly simple gimmick, but its effect on an audience was undeniable. The threat of death by drowning really drew people in. But the Houdini knockoff acts quickly devised their own versions of the milk can, something that deeply angered the jealous Houdini. He would get a reputation for using every legal means he could to put imitators out of business. Houdini's somewhat remorseless pursuit of those he perceived as ripoff artists started to hurt his reputation amongst some magicians. Some saw him as holier than thou. Others saw him as a bit of a bully. Either way, it's clear that Houdini guarded his act with everything he had. The success of the milk can and the unique danger posed by water escapes led Houdini towards what Kenneth Silverman has described as his greatest mechanical escape. This was the so-called Chinese water torture cell. You might be familiar with this escape. 
Nicknamed the Upside Down, or simply the USD, it was a mechanical escape that Houdini spent years developing. For this escape, a special glass water tank was constructed. Now, those that have seen the tank always comment on how small it is. Houdini, after all, was a very compact man. He stood only about five foot six inches. The original upside down tank was built to just fit Houdini's small frame. When Houdini performed this escape on stage, he would bring audience members up to inspect the apparatus while it was being ominously filled with water. After the witnesses were satisfied, Houdini would then have his feet locked into a pair of stocks that would form the lid of the water cell. Ropes were then attached to the lid and through the use of pulleys, Houdini would be lifted into the air by his feet and then steadily lowered upside down into the water tank. In many ways, this process of lifting and lowering Houdini was the most dangerous part of the escape. If he was dropped, he could have easily broken his neck. Once inside the tank, the steel lid was padlocked. Then the ghost house curtain was drawn around the cell. Kenneth Silverman explains that, quote, The upside down was not as fast as the three-second metamorphosis, but it was startlingly fast. Depending on the performance, Houdini left his still-locked torture cell behind him and burst from the cabinet drenched after two minutes, one minute, or even 30 seconds. End quote. This escape has often been cited as the crowning achievement of Houdini's magical career. When it first debuted, it was an absolute showstopper. This illusion would essentially ensure that Houdini could tour Europe and the United States for the rest of his life. After seeing the Upside Down performed live, one London reviewer would write that, quote, to say that the applause was deafening is putting it too mildly. The audience seemingly rose in a body and cannonaded their expressions of approval. End quote. But the story around the creation of the Chinese water torture cell also tells us something about Houdini at the height of his fame. The Upside Down, which first debuted in 1912, in many ways capped what had been a seven-year run of Houdini truly dominating the world of magic. Not only was he the most famous contemporary magician, but he began to see himself as one of the greatest of all time. And indeed, Houdini started to guard his status as the world's top magician quite tenaciously. We've spoken before in this series about Houdini's 1908 takedown of the famous magician Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin, Houdini's former hero. Well, some have guessed that Houdini wrote that book either consciously or subconsciously to try and dethrone the one magician who might be able to claim the title of greatest of all time over him. But of course... We're speculating here. Now, as I already mentioned, 
Houdini had been deeply annoyed that dozens of imitators had been able to do variations on his milk can escape. So he tried something a little different with the Chinese water torture cell. To protect the secret of the upside down, Houdini went to the trouble of writing a one-act play called Harry Houdini Upside Down. You see, while you couldn't technically patent a stage illusion, you could copyright a piece of theater. So, believe it or not, Houdini first performed the illusion as part of a hastily written play in London attended by just a handful of people for legal purposes. This meant that when imitators inevitably popped up, Houdini could sue for violation of copyright. They were doing his play without his permission. I kind of love that. The Chinese Water Torture Act would also become an essential element in the Houdini myth. Thanks again to the 1953 Tony Curtis film I mentioned earlier, many people believe that Houdini died while performing this escape. This is 100% not true. It makes for a much more dramatic ending, of course, if Houdini died on stage performing his best-loved illusion. It's a far more mythical ending. Icarus flies too close to the sun and whatnot. But that story is just pure Hollywood. But it is true that Houdini would die before his time. In fact, the final chapter of Houdini's story is deeply concerned with questions of death and the afterlife. So let's take a quick break. And when we return, we'll see how Houdini confronted death during his final years. Nineteen thirteen was a particularly traumatic year for Harry Houdini. In the summer of that year, he boarded a steamer for Europe. He was to embark on yet another continental tour with a number of significant dates in Denmark and one particularly high-profile engagement performing for the King of Sweden in Stockholm. However, Houdini only had the chance to perform one show in Copenhagen before receiving word that his beloved mother, Cecilia Weiss, had suffered a serious stroke. She would die on July 17, 1913. Houdini and Bess postponed their tour and immediately booked passage back to the United States. It's hard to overstate the effect that the loss of Houdini's mother had on the magician. He had always been incredibly close to his mother, and he saw it as one of his key goals to ensure that she was always comfortable. Her death was disorienting and depressing. 
Houdini biographer Kenneth Silverman has pointed out that in the period after Cecilia's death, Houdini's diary records many grief-induced breakdowns. Houdini's letters to his brother Dash contain lines like, quote, I can't seem to get over it. Sometimes I feel all right, but when a calm moment arrives, I'm as bad as ever, end quote. Houdini's grief in this period is entirely understandable and completely relatable. I also think it's key to understanding the final phase of Houdini's career and his eventual crusade against spiritualists, but we'll get to that. In the direct aftermath of his mother's death, Houdini didn't really slow down. In fact, his touring schedule remained as intense as ever. Now, in those years after his mother's death, he would go on to perform some of his most memorable stage illusions. These included the illusion where he appeared to walk through a brick wall. And of course, his record-setting disappearance of an elephant on stage. While no retrospective of Houdini can pass without these illusions being mentioned, these big stage effects were never as beloved as Houdini's escapes. The escapes remained his bread and butter. Anyway, all of this is to say that by 1920, Houdini was still widely regarded as one of America's greatest performers. However, his career was in transition. Houdini had started starring in films around the end of the 1910s. These were stunt-focused action movies for the silent era. Moving pictures were just becoming real competition for the vaudeville theaters of the day. So between 1918 and 1923, Houdini starred in four feature-length films and a series of 15 film serials. It would be tempting to call Houdini America's first action star, but the truth is that the films didn't make much money, and by 1923, he'd pretty much given up his ambitions as an actor. It was in this period of career flux in 1920 that Houdini first became acquainted with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Conan Doyle was the famous British author who had given the world Sherlock Holmes. It's hard to exaggerate just how important Conan Doyle's writing was for the mystery genre, and arguably popular English literature. Sherlock Holmes mysteries essentially provide the template for mysteries, at least in the English language. You could argue that every mystery writer has just been building on the work of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle ever since he started publishing. Now, I know I'm sure that's an oversimplification and there are other writers that have been just as significant or writers that have come after Sir Arthur Conan Doyle that were not directly influenced by Sherlock Holmes. But still, I think we can agree that Sherlock Holmes is one of the most important characters in English literature in the last hundred years, maybe more. I'm throwing it out there. But what I find interesting is that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author, could not have been more different from his literary creation, Sherlock Holmes. As fans of Holmes know, the detective is defined by his scientific precision, his nearly superhuman powers of observation, and most importantly, 
his powers of logical deduction. Holmes sees through all ruses, misdirections, and villainous schemes with a clarity that astounds everyone around him. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, on the other hand, was a bit more, shall we say, credulous. Doyle was a true believer in spiritualism. What does that mean? Well, he first started attending seances in the 1880s, and he quickly became convinced that the phenomena that he witnessed during these sittings were quite real. He believed that there were people on this earth, mediums, who could contact the realm of the spirits. He believed that in the context of these seances, spirits could take physical form, manipulate objects in a room, speak, and sometimes manifest strange types of goo known as ectoplasm. After World War I, spiritualism experienced a bit of a revival in Europe and the United States. Some who had lost loved ones during the war were taking solace in experiences with mediums who claimed that they could put them in contact with their deceased family members. Conan Doyle himself lost his eldest son, Kingsley, who was wounded in the Battle of the Somme and later passed away in a British infirmary. Kenneth Silverman has suggested that it was the loss of Kingsley that turned Conan Doyle from a, quote, believer to an evangelist, end quote. After the death of Kingsley, Doyle sat with a medium in London where he believed he heard the voice of his deceased son. Now, some experts think that Conan Doyle was already a fully converted spiritualist by the time of Kingsley's passing, but there's no denying that his experience hearing his son's lost voice only deepened his faith in the mediums he believed could contact the world of the dead. So, in 1920, Houdini, who was a great admirer of Conan Doyle's, sent the author a copy of his book, The Unmasking of Robert Houdin. Conan Doyle enjoyed the book, and so struck up a correspondence with the magician. In one of his first letters, Conan Doyle told Houdini that he admired what he was trying to do with his book. However, he took some offense to a few swipes that Houdini had taken at some prominent spiritualists. You see, Houdini had characterized these so-called mediums as simply clever magicians. He didn't believe that they could actually contact the spirit world. Conan Doyle thought that was offensive, as he sincerely believed in the truth of these mediums. This touched off a flurry of correspondence between Houdini and Conan Doyle. Apparently, they sent something like 10 letters back and forth over the span of two weeks. Now, at first, it seems like Houdini really wanted to ingratiate himself with Conan Doyle. He respected the man and genuinely wanted to be his friend. And so, he tamped down his skepticism around spiritualist practices. And instead, he presented himself in his letters as a possible disciple. Houdini said that he was simply interested in learning more about spiritualism. 
This touched off a brief but somewhat intense friendship between Houdini and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Within a few months, Houdini and Bess were visiting with the Doyle family at their family estate in Sussex. Houdini found Conan Doyle to be a completely disarming person. He was, by all accounts, a very warm and sincere man. His belief in spiritualism, which Houdini suspected was misguided, was totally sincere. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle wasn't trying to fool anyone. He was genuinely trying to understand the nature of the universe. And so Houdini agreed to start attending seances with mediums that Doyle recommended as some of the best. Over the next two years, Houdini attended literally dozens of seances and other sittings with mediums to see for himself if there was truly anything to this practice. But often at these seances, Houdini simply saw what he recognized as a magic show. Either the experiences were totally unremarkable, or he noticed the mediums using various tricks that he recognized from a lifetime as a magician. These could be things like cold reading techniques that could give the impression of mind reading or messages coming from the spirit world. He also noticed some mediums using sleight of hand to produce the goo known as ectoplasm. The more seances he attended, the more Houdini became convinced that these mediums were conning people using techniques borrowed from stage magic. Now, at first, Houdini seems to have tempered his criticisms when corresponding with Conan Doyle. He didn't want to destroy their friendship. He was always clear that he remained skeptical, but he would usually stop short of accusing Doyle's recommended mediums of being all-out frauds. Now, there's a great little story in Kenneth Silverman's book that really hammers home how gullible Sir Arthur Conan Doyle could be. Apparently, one time, Houdini, Sir Arthur, and Lady Doyle shared a cab in New York, while in the cab, Houdini did the old trick where it looks like you've detached your thumb at the knuckle. My grandpa used to do that trick. Apparently, Lady Doyle nearly fainted and Sir Arthur marveled, quote, You certainly have very wonderful powers, end quote. Well, for Houdini, that was a bit much. The fact that they could be so amazed by the old oops, there goes my thumb routine, was evidence of just how easily taken in they could be. They were sweet, but gullible. The turning point in Houdini and Conan Doyle's relationship, and Houdini's relationship with spiritualism more generally, has gone down in Houdini lore as the Atlantic City Seance. In June of 1922, Harry and Bess joined Sir Arthur and his family at the Ambassador Hotel in Atlantic City. Now, the Doyles and the Houdinis would later provide different accounts of what happened. But according to Houdini, one day while lounging on the beach, Sir Arthur suggested that the couple might want to try an automatic writing session where his wife, Jean, would try and contact Houdini's mother. 
Now, according to Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, it was actually Houdini who suggested the automatic writing session. It's hard to know. Now, if you're unfamiliar with automatic writing, the idea is that a medium reaches out to the spirit world and then in a trance, they start writing. It's believed that the spirit is guiding the pen of the medium. Back in their hotel room in Atlantic City, the couples sat down together at a table. The curtains were drawn, and Lady Doyle took out a pad of paper and a pencil. She then called out to the spirit world. Then she believed that she contacted Cecilia Vice. Lady Doyle scribbled out 15 pages of notes, apparently dictated directly from the spirit of Houdini's mother. Cecilia sent her son a message of love. And interestingly, she also included a message of praise for Sir Arthur Conan Doyle for all the good work he was doing for the spirits. Jean would record her saying, quote, I always read my beloved son's mind. I am almost overwhelmed by this joy of talking to him once more. God bless you too, Sir Arthur, for what you are doing for us over here. End quote. Over here, presumably being the spirit realm. Now, the Doyles would remember Houdini leaving the seance, quote, deeply moved, end quote. They would also later report that when they saw Houdini two days later after the automatic writing session, he remarked, quote, I have been walking on air ever since, end quote. However, Houdini would remember the event much differently. He was not at all convinced that Lady Doyle had contacted his mother in Atlantic City. Nothing about the session felt right to Houdini. First, Whatever spirit had possessed Lady Doyle that day had drawn the sign of the cross at the top of one of the pages when asked if she believed in God. Houdini thought this was strange, considering that his mother was Jewish, the wife of a rabbi no less. She would not have made the sign of the cross. Secondly, all the notes made by Lady Doyle were in clear grammatically sound English. Cecilia Weiss barely spoke English. She communicated in German and Yiddish for most of her life and only spoke the most basic broken English. These 15 pages of English love notes simply did not sound like Houdini's mother. Now, he didn't think that the Doyles were purposely trying to deceive him. Rather, he became convinced that they had truly deluded themselves. Lady Doyle believed that she was truly channeling the spirits, but Houdini chalked this up to what he called, quote, religious mania. The Atlantic City seance is often pointed to as the moment when Houdini lost his last shred of tolerance for spiritualism. He didn't like people playing with the memory of his mother. Now, this might be overstating things, but what is clear is that in October of 1922, just a few months after the Atlantic City seance, Houdini published his first public denunciation of the tricks used by spiritualist mediums. 
in an article for Popular Radio magazine titled Ghosts That Talk by Radio, Houdini declared that all the, quote, spiritualist miracles that he had witnessed over the years were, quote, merely phenomena well known to the average magician, end quote. The rest of the article was dedicated to Houdini showing how a popular spiritualist gimmick of having a kettle answer questions in a ghostly whisper was achieved through a small hidden radio receiver. This was just the start. Houdini started attending meetings with spiritualists and other mediums with the express intention of catching them in the act of their deceptions. In October of 1923, Houdini published a scathing article in the New York Sun called Spirits Compacts Unfulfilled, where he unambiguously called out the entire spiritualist movement as an elaborate fraud. This was truly the last straw for his and Conan Doyle's friendship. Their letters got more heated, and soon they were taking shots at each other in the press. The once warm friendship had become a bitter public rivalry. But Houdini's new verve for exposing spiritualists gave his career some new energy. By 1924, he headed out on the lecture circuit with a two-hour presentation documenting the history of spiritualism and the many magic-inspired deceptions used by mediums. He also started to be called in by investigators to test various mediums. Now, many of these mediums worked in surprisingly brazen ways. You see, most of these seances happened in pitch-dark rooms— Houdini pointed out that most of the effects produced during seances simply could not happen in the light. In fact, some mediums were exposed simply by turning the lights on during the seance. One Los Angeles-based medium who went by the name Peck was accused of moving things around the room himself in the dark. So he agreed to have his pants legs sewn to the floor. Well, at one of these seances, the lights were turned on and he was caught creeping around the room in his underwear. However, not all spiritualists were as easily caught. Houdini determined that many used some of the same techniques that he did as an escape artist. Some spiritualists manipulated objects in the room with their surprisingly dexterous toes and feet. Some used spies and informants to dig up information on their seance attendees ahead of time to give the impression of having messages sent by the spirits. This all culminated in a book-length expose of a number of the best-known mediums titled A Magician Among the Spirits. According to some, it's the best book that Houdini ever wrote. So if you're really curious about all the techniques used by spiritualists revealed by Houdini, then please check out Magician Among the Spirits. Eventually, Houdini ended up devoting the whole third act of his stage show to demonstrating how spiritualists achieved their effects. This was sort of like a proto-pen-and-teller routine where Houdini would show the audience how tricks were done. Now, Houdini felt like he was coming from a very moral place when he took on the spiritualists. He truly believed that their deceptions were cruel and manipulative. 
Mediums who charged money for their services were literally profiting off of people's grief and offering them false hope. At the height of his crusade, Harry Houdini would even testify before the Congress of the United States, arguing that mediums and other types of fortune-telling should be banned. But this brings us to one of the questions that fascinates me about the life of Harry Houdini. And that is, when is it justified to lie? What deceptions are moral? I think Houdini articulated this best in the introduction to his book, A Magician Among the Spirits. In that introduction, he reflects on his own early dalliances with spiritualism in his magic act. He would write, quote, I appreciated the fact that I surprised my clients, but while aware of the fact that I was deceiving them, I did not see or understand the seriousness of trifling with such sacred sentimentality and the baneful results which inevitably followed. To me, it was a lark. I was a mystifier, and as such, my ambition was being gratified and my love for a mild sensation satisfied. After delving deep, I realized the seriousness of it all. As I advanced to riper years of experience, I was brought to a realization of the seriousness of trifling with the hallowed reverence with the average human being bestows on the departed. And when I personally became afflicted with similar grief, I was chagrined that I should ever have been guilty of such frivolity. And for the first time, I realized that it bordered on crime. End quote. For Houdini... There was the line in the sand. You could deceive people, but you couldn't play with real emotions, especially the love of family. That was sacred. While many cheered Houdini's crusade, it also made him many enemies. Not only were the mediums enraged that Houdini was running them out of business, but spiritualist true believers like Sir Arthur Conan Doyle felt like what he was doing was nearly hateful. From Doyle's perspective, Houdini was attacking his religion. There were even a few magicians who were uncomfortable with the fact that to expose spiritualists, Houdini had to break a cardinal rule of magic. Don't reveal magical secrets. By demonstrating how spiritualists achieve their ends, Houdini was also, by extension, ruining the illusions of some legitimate stage magicians. But despite this pushback, Houdini was not deterred in the slightest. In fact, as the years went on, he began to hope that his campaign against spiritualism would become his legacy. But unfortunately, by 1926, Houdini's career would be cut short. By Halloween of that year, Harry Houdini would be dead. What happened? Why did we lose Houdini while he was still in the prime of his life? Well, let's take one more break, and when we return, we'll get to the bottom of it.
It's almost too poetic that Harry Houdini died on Halloween. For a man so deeply associated with magic to die on the most darkly magical night of the year. I mean, if you wrote it in a work of fiction, people would roll their eyes. But it's true. It's oddly fitting that the circumstances around Houdini's death are somewhat strange and still a little mysterious. As I said earlier, one of the most popular misconceptions about Houdini's death comes from the 1953 Houdini biopic starring Tony Curtis. That is the belief, of course, that Houdini dramatically died on stage while performing the Chinese water torture escape. But if you have been disabused of this Hollywood myth, then you may have heard the other story about Houdini's death. That is, that Houdini died after being punched hard in the stomach. But of course, turns out the fabled punch story is a bit more complicated than you might expect. So let's break this down. One of the most thorough examinations of Houdini's death has to be Montreal journalist Don Bell's 2004 book, The Man Who Killed Houdini. Now, it's fitting that it was a Montreal journalist who was the one to so thoroughly pick this story apart because Montreal plays such a key role in Houdini's final days. Let's start by establishing some basic facts. Houdini died while touring the Northeast United States and Canada in the fall of 1926. And it was while he was in Montreal between October 20th and October 22nd while performing a run of dates at the Princess Theater, that Houdini sustained a punch to the abdomen. But the wild thing that Don Bell discovered in his research is that there are at least three distinct stories about Houdini being punched in the gut. Okay, now first we should establish some things about Houdini and gut punches. It sometimes gets reported that getting punched in the stomach was part of Houdini's act. It's sometimes said that Houdini would challenge anyone in his audience to come up and punch him as hard as they could while he flexed his impressive abdominals. This does not seem to be true. While Houdini did brag about his musculature, getting punched in the gut was never a regular part of his show. There is a little evidence that Houdini may have challenged people to punch him offstage before the infamous Montreal punch, but not much. If Houdini bragged about being able to take a punch, it was so rare that it has barely been recorded. Nevertheless, according to investigator Don Bell, there are three distinct tales of Houdini being punched while in Montreal. The first of these punches, Don Bell calls the Pickleman Punch. On October 20th, Houdini gave a presentation at the Student Union at McGill University in Montreal. The presentation naturally focused on fraudulent mediums and the trickery employed by the spiritualist movement. One former student named Jack Hausner would tell Don Bell that after the presentation, about a dozen students approached Houdini. He was apparently very warm with the young admirers. And then one student named Gerald Pickleman 
asked Houdini if he could test his abdominal muscles by giving him one hard punch. Houdini obliged. Jack Hausner would remember that Houdini had time to prepare himself, and Pickleman gave him just one hard blow. Don Bell managed to contact Gerald Pickleman's widow, and she also remembered her husband telling the story of punching Houdini. Now, this is fascinating because the Pickleman punch is not the punch that is usually credited with killing Houdini. On top of that, there may have been yet another punch in the gut that happened about a day later. This story comes from one Gilles Larine, who is the descendant of one of the owners of the Prince of Wales Hotel. That was the hotel where Houdini stayed while performing in Montreal. Gilles had heard secondhand from his grandfather, the former owner, that one night while Houdini was staying in the hotel, he was reclining on a chair in the lobby reading a newspaper. When four rowdy college kids stumbled drunk out of the nearby bar, The Pig and Whistle. One of them, wanting to prove their strength, went up to the distracted Houdini and, quote, without any warning, hit him through the newspaper in the stomach, a crunching blow. Houdini doubled over in pain, said, you shouldn't have done that, very slowly and walked out of the lobby, end quote. Now, we only know about this story secondhand, but <laughs> I also find it wild because this is also not the punch that is usually credited with killing Houdini. The notorious punch was delivered by one J. Gordon Whitehead. Now, this punch was witnessed by two reliable eyewitnesses, and the Montreal police would eventually take official depositions from everyone involved. This is the one punch that we can say for sure actually happened. Now, one of the eyewitnesses was yet another McGill student, a certain Sam Smilovitz, sometimes called Sam Smiley. Smiley had been at Houdini's student union talk on the 20th, where he had shown the magician a sketch that he had made of him. Houdini was so impressed by the sketch that he invited the young man to come backstage at the Princess Theater on the night of the 22nd to create another sketch. While Smiley was sketching Houdini, he remembered that a large, mature student named Gordon Whitehead entered the dressing room. Smiley remembers Whitehead saying that he was a divinity student, and he began questioning Houdini about the miracles in the Bible. Houdini sidestepped this by saying that he doesn't really discuss that kind of thing. Then Whitehead started prodding Houdini about his ability to withstand blows to the abdomen. Apparently, Houdini was modest and said that he was more proud of his forearm muscles, which were like steel. At this point, Whitehead asked if he could strike a few blows to test Houdini's abs. Sam Smiley remembers Houdini saying, quote, go ahead. But at that moment, Houdini was reclining on a couch and may have not had a chance to prepare himself. The eyewitness remembered Whitehead landing five or six strong blows to Houdini's midsection before someone else in the room finally pulled him off. Perhaps realizing that he had overdone it, Whitehead then quickly left the room. Now, 
We can't be sure that every detail given to us by Sam Smiley is accurate. But thanks to cooperating documents from the Montreal police, we can say with certainty that the Whitehead punch did happen. But here's the thing that I think is so crazy. That Whitehead punch, this punch that has been held up as the punch that killed Houdini, could very well have been the third punch that Houdini took to the gut in as many days. If the Pickleman punch, the Prince of Wales attack, and the Whitehead punch are all legit, then Houdini was getting pummeled when he was in Montreal. What we know is that by October 24th, Houdini was in Detroit to open a two-week run of dates. On the train between Montreal and Detroit, the pain in his abdomen had become so intolerable that Bess became deeply concerned and wired ahead to have a doctor meet them at the train station. When Houdini arrived in Detroit, he was running a temperature of 102 degrees Fahrenheit. The doctor on the scene found signs of appendicitis. But instead of heading to the hospital immediately, Houdini insisted that he perform the show that night. It was opening night in Detroit, after all. By the time he took the stage, his fever had increased to an alarming 104 degrees. Now, he somehow managed to muscle his way through the show. And contrary to a popular myth, he did not collapse on stage. However, he did cut the performance short and had his assistants do a bit more of the heavy lifting during the third act. But by the end of the show, Houdini was destroyed. He passed out backstage and was taken back to his hotel, where he was examined by yet another physician. Now, he also recommended that Houdini get to the hospital immediately. But the stubborn Houdini insisted on getting a second opinion over the phone from his doctor in New York before he finally got himself to Grace Hospital in Detroit. At the hospital, it was determined that his appendix had burst. On October 25th, he underwent surgery to remove what was left. But sadly, the damage was already done. With his appendix burst, Houdini was now suffering from an infection known as peritonitis. He would hold on miraculously for another five days in hospital before finally passing away on October 31st. Okay, so here's the big question. Did the punch, or punches, kill him? Well, the jury is still out on this. A burst appendix killed Houdini. But the question is, would a punch to the gut lead to a ruptured appendix? In researching this series, I've read that it's technically possible for this to happen, but it's actually quite rare. It also seems unlikely that Houdini's appendix burst right after the punch he sustained on the 22nd as he managed to keep performing both in Montreal and in Detroit through the 23rd and the 24th of October. What seems most likely is that Houdini was ignoring the symptoms of appendicitis. If Houdini had in fact sustained three punches to the gut over the course of three days in Montreal, he may have mistaken the abdominal pain of appendicitis 
as just the fallout from the hits, the punches may have kept him from getting treated earlier, which may have saved his life. In the direct wake of Houdini's death, rumors circulated that he may have been murdered by vengeful spiritualists, eager to have him out of the picture. Some have even guessed that the mysterious Gordon Whitehead may have been a hired assassin. Houdini had often joked that the day he died would be a national day of celebration for the spiritualists. He even once commented to a friend that, quote, those mediums are bad actors and would think of nothing of putting you in the hospital or worse, end quote. One famous spiritualist with whom Houdini had a very public confrontation had once threatened that if he should slander her from the stage, quote, some of my friends will come and give you a good beating, end quote. She would even go on to publicly curse Houdini and prophesy his death for December 21st, 1925. While she got the date wrong, the fact that Houdini was dead within the year kept true believers, well, believing. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle would later tell Houdini's first biographer, Harold Kellogg, that in an automatic writing session with his wife, Jean, in March of 1926, some nine months before Houdini's death, she wrote out the passage, quote, Houdini is doomed, 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 end quote. It's very tempting to see Houdini's death as a possible murder. But Don Bell, in all of his relentless research around this topic, could not make any clear connections between Gordon Whitehead or any of the other alleged attackers and any known spiritualists. And honestly, if you wanted to kill someone, a punch in the gut isn't necessarily the most reliable technique. It's highly unlikely that Houdini's death was a hit. After Houdini passed away, his wife Bess held a seance every year on Halloween. Houdini had promised her that if there was a way to communicate between the worlds of the living and the dead, he would attempt it from beyond the grave. The two even concocted a secret code so Bess would know that it was truly him communicating from the other side. Their secret code word was Rosabel, followed by the phrase, answer, tell, pray, answer, look, tell, answer, answer, tell. This was a code that they had devised years ago to communicate secret information while on stage together. That secret code spelled the word believe. Bess dutifully held her seance every year until 1936, 10 years after her husband's death. In those 10 years, the code never came through. So she respectfully ended her yearly seances, making her peace with her husband's passing. But Bess never lost her sense of humor. In 1936, when a journalist asked her why she had given up the seances, she quipped, quote, 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. End quote. In the end, what should we make of Houdini? Well, Houdini was a true showman with all the good and bad that came with that. 
He had an enormous ego. He could be prickly and had little mercy for those that crossed him. He had a hard time seeing the faults in himself that he so quickly pointed out in others. But he was also warm, loving, and had time and patience for his fans. He lied as a matter of practice. He had no qualms about inventing stories about his life and adventures. He made an art out of deception. And yet, there were some lies that were too big even for Houdini. Some boundaries he simply would not cross. Houdini may have been flawed, but he was ultimately a deeply moral man. And this is to say nothing about what he was able to achieve as a performer. Nearly 100 years later, people are still mystified by the feats of the great Houdini. If that's not immortality, then I don't know what is. Okay, that's all for this week. Join us again in two weeks' time when we will explore another historical myth. Before we go this week, I need to give a whole lot of shout-outs, so uh, buckle in. Big ups to Crystal Patrick, to Tasia Cantlin, to Scott Whittle, to Roland Hatsenpilcher, to Lucius Kolbanis Cotta, to Kyle Baxter, to Jay Matthews, to Clay Wilcox, to Christina, to Niraj Chuby, to Luke Romer, to Myers, to Tama Weiss, to Nicole Schnee, to Kesian Weeks, to Kate Rosen, to Wyatt, to David, to Carter Thrower, to Christopher Patterson, to Scott Todd, to Norium, to Alan Fenwald, to Stefan Vukonic, to Kim Barda, to Ricky Pape, to Nathan Fornwalt, to Alan Fenwald, to Rachel Schulman, to Adriana Hendricks, to BJ Harris, to Adam Rich, to Derek Courtney, to Joanna Wojtek, to Lauren Kane, to Derek to Paul Albertson, to B. Ted, to JP, to Rachel Selkie, to, uh, to Cleon, to Andrew Burick, to Grant Shearer, to Sam Goodley, to Bonk Bonk, to Juan Shute, to Michael Sosiniski, to Jim Hess, to Chip Alianakian, and to Jason Stenhauser. Wow. All of those people have decided to pledge at $5 or more every month on Patreon. So you know what that means. You are beautiful human beings. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. It means absolutely everything. It's what keeps this podcast going. It's uh, really, I could not do this without your support. So thank you again. If you think you want to get in there and support just like these people, go to patreon.com slash history. And check out the level of support that works for you. If you ever want to get in touch with me, you can always send me an email at ourfakehistory at gmail.com. You can hit me up on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash ourfakehistory. You can find me on Twitter at ourfakehistory. And you can find me on Instagram at ourfakehistory. The theme music for the show comes to us from Dirty Church. You can check out more from Dirty Church at dirtychurch.bandcamp.com. 
And all the other music you heard on the show today was written and recorded by me. My name is Sebastian Major, and remember, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it isn't real. Thank you.